Today's scripture reading is from James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Not sure. If, uh, there we go. Wasn't sure if that was on. Hey, it's good to be here and worshiping with you this morning. We are continuing our series on relationships. We've been uh, earlier on in the year. We decided to go ahead and track through together the passage that we look at on Sunday in our home meetings during during the week. And so we've been looking at different things to get in the way of our relationships with one another. And one of the things that we see in this passage this week is that showing mercy, showing mercy, or the reasons why we wouldn't show mercy are some of the things that get in the way not only of our relationship with one another, but our relationship with God himself. And so I was thinking about this passage in particular and thinking about how, how can we open it up? How can we orient ourselves to what James is saying to us here? And I thought about, you know, I don't, I don't watch a ton of TV, but sometimes I'll visit family and a show will be on that they enjoy and I'll watch it with them. And I remember watching a show with my aunt, I don't know whether it was a year or two ago, I think it was called Undercover Boss. Do you know this, the premise of this show? So the idea is that there's an owner of a company right? And it's a fairly large company, so large that the owner cannot, actually doesn't, isn't involved, very involved with the running and operating of the day-to-day, right? Owns but doesn't operate. And so the show's about the, the idea where the, the boss goes in as one of the new employees in any particular area of the company and begins to get the training, gets the experience of what it means to be on the ground in the company. And it's interesting because he uh, experiences uh, things that he would never experience if he was uh, known to be the boss, right? And so the, the show unfolds and certain people re- reveal themselves as being very happy to work there and very loyal to the company and very um, thoughtful about the way that they go about bringing their energies to the job. And then there are other people who are 
a little bit more jaded about the company and the way that they're jaded comes out in the way that they work. And sometimes the, the boss undercover will look at that for uh, helpful criticisms that, that he might be able to use to shape things. And then there are people who are just off the rails in the company that nobody has identified or people are afraid to identify. Managers who are not doing their work and everybody hates them, but because they've sort of run things in fear, uh, nobody wants to lose their job and tell them about it. And so at the end of the show, of course, the, the boss is unmasked and uh, uh, things happen. You know, the people who are really dedicated rise up in the company and get promoted or get a scholarship to to go ahead and study this next level that would bring them up in the company. Uh, the people who are uh, were critical, their, criti their critiques are taken seriously and there's some things implemented. The people who were off the rails, they're out. Somebody else is brought in. It's an interesting thing because when we come to this passage, what we're looking at is the mercy that Jesus shows us and the mercy we should show as a result. And it's a lot like this, this first point, we're going to look at three things, but the first point that we're going to look at in particular is a lot like Undercover Boss, only it's Undercover Family, right? Undercover, undercover Dad of the family coming in and seeing whether or not you're living like family, whether you're living like brothers and sisters. Um, so we're going to look at our agenda today. is going to look at the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus gives us... Jesus gives us God's personal presence, which changes the way that we relate to, number one, one another. It changes the way that we relate to God's law, and it changes the way that we relate to God himself. So in the gospel, Jesus gives us God's personal presence, and that changes the way that we relate to one another, to God's law, and to God himself. Let's take a look. How is the way that we are to relate to one another supposed to change because of his presence? Well, to understand that, first we just need to see what needs changed. What needs changed in the way that we relate to one another? Verse uh, 3 says that uh, the church that James is writing to and us, but we're paying attention, paying attention, and while you say. So they're paying attention to those who might benefit them in their worship services. They were paying attention to those who might benefit them. And at the same time, they were saying to those who weren't able to benefit them in the same way, there was this switch. So there was paying attention to one group of people and not paying attention to another group of people. Okay? And what happened there is James is getting across in verse 3 that you're never to say or to act like. You're never to say or to act like you were on the periphery of society, and so you'll be on the periphery here as well. Do you see that? The context is a worship service. And so if, if, if there's somebody here who is on the periphery of society, and that may include some of you, and it may not, some of you have been on the periphery of something, somewhere, sometime. We're never to act and speak to one another as though that's true in God's kingdom. That's true coming before God in his presence. That's true in worship. Now, verse 4, he goes on to say, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? These are distinctions that he's pointing out, James is pointing out, that the Lord himself doesn't make. The distinctions that they're making about one another are distinctions the Lord himself does not make. Uh, one of the things in verse 1 that James calls the Lord, he says, is our Lord, our. It's like when we pray the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray? Our Father. 
You know, one of the, um, Martin Luther had a great letter to his barber. It was was entitled, A Simple Way to Pray, because his barber asked him, Master Luther, how do we, uh, how should we pray? And so he wrote him, you know, an eight-page treatise on how to pray. Um, He was a monk. He spent a lot of time praying. But uh, the idea was to, one of the things that Luther did before he read the Bible and just uh, drew near to God in his personal disciplines, his quiet time, as it were, uh, one of the things he would do is he would warm up with the Lord's Prayer. And he would meditate on it and chew on it. And he would, he would have it in its, it's literally like almost having in, in your mouth hard candy. You know, he didn't just bite through it and swallow. He let it melt. He, it's like a great piece of butterscotch where you let it melt and you taste it melting. And you let it uh, fall over your tongue. And that's part of the wonder of eating hard candy. What's well, a part of the wonder of, of reading God's scriptures? So when he would prepare to preach, one of the things he would do is he would start with the Lord's Prayer. And he would just take out a different word. He would say, Our Father the word in heaven. He would just work it a line at a time. He would say, what does the word our tell us about who God is? What he's done? Who we are as a result? And he would think about it. And he would taste that truth slowly. And then he would go further. He would say, our Father, who art in heaven. You see? So he would just start to taste that. In the same way, James in verse 1, he says he's our Lord. He's not just It's not just us, it's theirs too. Those who are coming into worship with you, regardless of where they're coming from in life, those who are holding to the faith in the gospel, regardless of where they're at in in the eyes of the world, their father is our father too. It's God, our father, right? Distinction, and and what's he say? James says in verse 4 that you become judges. You become judges with evil thoughts. What's going on there? And this is essential to the kinds of distinctions that we make with one another that the Lord doesn't make. The Lord doesn't make with his people. And so he says that you've become judges with evil thoughts. Distinctions like that, in other words, begin to transform you. When you engage in distinctions that the Lord himself does not make, it begins to transform you only you don't have any control over what it's transforming you into. It's taking hold of you. It's imprisoning you. It's going to bring you down. Distinctions like that begin to transform you. The word become is what he uses there. And, and it, you become, it transforms you into doing what the Lord himself uh, is supposed to be doing. In other words, what does he say? Often we'll say, well, you know, I like to show discernment in life. When I spend time with somebody or I extend myself to them, I am discerning about who I I, I extend myself to. Now, that's right. I'm not arguing against discernment, but that's not what he's talking about here. The people that James is writing to aren't just discerning. They've spilled over into judgment, right? They've spilled over into judgment. They're doing what the Lord himself has reserved for himself to do. What we say when we become judges is that you have no real rights here. Now, who can say who has the right but the Lord? And yet, that's what we do. So James is is coming against that. Now, why? That's how, but why is the way that we relate to one another supposed to change because of his presence? Verse 2, comes into your assembly. The word assembly is the word for church word for gathering. It's the same word that was used in in the Hebrew scriptures when the Old Testament people of God were gathered 
to worship. It's the same word used for the New Testament people of God when they gathered to worship. When we assemble here to worship, the word assembly and word church are interchangeable. You know, I think um, it's possible to grow up on the outside of Christianity and look in and think that a church is a building. You know, we have some great church buildings here in this city alone, let, let alone around the world. But that's not what the word means. The word church means the gathering of God's people. In fact, Peter goes so far to say in another place in the Bible that you are the living stones. You are his church. You are the gathered people. You, it's, not, it's not a fantastic place. It's you. God dwells in you. He meets and assembles when you assemble with you. He's personally present there, right? Uh, so comes into your assembly. The, the context is worship. In verse 1, we already talked about our Lord. Our Lord. That there's no distinction for somebody who comes to worship and holds to the faith of Jesus. Right? But then he starts to really unpack. Look. Verse 5. Listen, he says. means pay attention. Let me give you an example. This is what's going on. This is how it breaks down. He says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? What does that mean? It means those who are without means, relationships, or other resources that they need to flourish. You know this in Jesus. When you look at the examples of how he lived his life, who is he hanging out with? He would spend time with the poor and the marginalized. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the social outcasts, those on the fringes. He hung out with the religious outcasts. I'm thinking of the Samaritan woman at the well. A woman, a rabbi hanging out with a woman and engaging her in theological discourse, but also Samaritan, the sworn enemy of God's people at that time, having branched off in part of the exile of, of God's people. I won't get into that here. But my point is, is that Jesus hung out with those who were marginalized. Now, if you begin to think about the message of the gospel, that includes those who are spiritually marginalized. And who does that include? Each one of us sitting here and standing here. This line that James talks about is primarily those who are without in the world, but in this light, when you look at it spiritually, he's trying to draw the connection. He's saying, look, yes, the gospel goes out here, but if you remember the gospel, it's true that all of us are marginalized and on the outskirts and unable to come into God's presence on our own. We're not to be included in our own merit by what we bring to the table. So he says about, he says about, has God chosen those, has God, not God chosen those who are poor in the world? He says, verse 5, to be rich in faith. To be rich in faith. This means all the means needed and more in faith in Jesus. To be considered children of God. To be considered co-heirs with Christ. To, to not be shown um, you know, this strange distinction as though they're somehow different, somehow off the map. Verse 5, and heirs of the kingdom, material inheritance is coming that displays its na- itself now in different manner, right? Part of our faith is not just that Jesus died and was resurrected, but we'll say it when we say the creed, is coming again to judge the living and the dead is coming again. And when he judges the living and dead, part of our hope is that he'll make a new heavens, a new city, and a new earth. And there'll be a place 
in which he dwells and we dwell together with people from every, many uh, nations, from all nations. So heirs of the kingdom, right? Material inheritance. I was thinking about um, how material inheritance displays itself now in a different manner of living. I was um, at Central Park in New York one year for one of the big concerts they have in the, in the summertime. And we have to, you know, the thing about those is you have to pack up a big cart with all your food for the day because once you get in, it's very hard to get out. Uh, and so you pack up your cart and your food and your drinks and you bring it early. You know, we left, we lived in Brooklyn at the time and we left at like four in the morning and we're on the subway and we got this big cart and we get to Central Park and uh, Mayor Giuliani was there at the time. He was the mayor at the time. And Mayor Giuliani is a man of means. And one of the things that you'll notice if you're around people who have tremendous amount of means is that they, their posture is, is very particular. You can tell that they have means. The way that they carry themselves, the way that they hold themselves, the kind of authority that they show. I mean, he had an, kind of an aura of means about him, and he, he handled himself just like that. What James is saying is that these heirs of the kingdom who you're trying to cast out and make distinctions about have those means. They have as much right to those means as you do, and they have as much right to carry themselves as though they have those means as you do. Verse 5, which he has promised to those who love them. If God promises, who are you to go against that promise? Who are you to go against that promise? He's called them to be those who love him. And how can you treat them as though that is not the case? He says, you dishonor the poor man. You dishonor. You fail to give them the respect that he deserves. It's like undercover boss, but in this case, it's like undercover family. This is an heir to the kingdom. When you show these kinds of distinctions, when you judge wrongly, out of an evil heart, out of an evil attitude, you're treating an heir of the kingdom as though they're not heirs. You're treating them as though you have the right to judge over them. Stop that. That's not right. So he goes on, and and the second thing that we'll talk about is Jesus gives us God's personal presence, which changes the the way that we relate to God's law. Now, how is it that the way that we relate to God's law deal with any of this? And how is it supposed to change? Verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There's our namesake, right? Liberty, freedom. Under the law of freedom. So what... What's the contrast? If you, and he goes through, and there's an intense contrast in verse 4 and following. Verse 4 says, They made distinctions among themselves and became judges. Right? But verse 6, he says, But rather than acting in line with God's promises, you've done something else. In other words, when people come in to your midst and you're making these distinctions, you're not acting in line with God's promises. You're acting in line with something else. What is it? And he goes to say, are not the rich? And he he begins to look at the standard by which they're using to make discernment like this, to make judgment like this. And he says, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? He's saying, think. You are using the same kind of tactics. You're judging those who don't, you're judging who doesn't have rights, those who show no mercy. They drag you into court. You know, it's like um, Scrooge. A Christmas carol, right? When uh, people come along and ask him, can you spare some money for the poor and those who are in need and those who are without resources? And he says, aren't there the workhouses? 
Aren't there the orphanages? Aren't there the state programs? Let them go and be there, you know? Or let them die and decrease the surplus population. Wow. And part of the em- emphasis of the Christmas carol is that Scrooge eventually sees that he's been shown mercy and so therefore he's going to also show mercy, right? Verse 7, are, not, are they not the, one, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Think. What he's saying is think. You are using tactics of those who speak unfaithfully, untruthfully, with dishonor about the Lord of glory, who called you by his name and bringing you into his family. What does that mean when somebody calls you by their name? When you have no name yourself, when you have no resources yourself, and a good family brings you in, and calls you by their name. It means you're part of the family. It means you have rights as a family. It means you're treated with the resources of the family. It means if somebody comes against you, they're coming against the family, right? In the same way, verse 7, you are dishonoring by using the same tactics as those who would dishonor the Lord. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Look, he's giving you a royal name, and along with that comes his royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what living life well with his name and under his promises look like. So he sets that up, and he says, but again, he shows, he contrasts, he shows, he says to show partiality. If you show partiality, verse 9, if you judge who has rights, and who doesn't? You're committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You're not acting like a son. You're not acting like a child of the kingdom. You're not acting like an heir. But instead, you're acting like an enemy. You no longer relate to God as your father who has given you his name, but as your judge who convicts you as a sworn enemy. He says, if you try to live as one who judges other in verse 10... If you try to keep other parts of the law and you fail at this point, you're failing keeping all of it. What's he saying? He's saying that by the way that you make these distinctions, you're trying to live as though you yourself can honor the law. You yourself are the standard by which you have to live by. You yourself are the standard by which others have to live by. You can't make those kinds of distinctions. If you fall in one part of it, you're accountable for falling another way. Hey, listen, if you get disease, a lot of colds going around right now, a lot of sicknesses, a lot of, a lot of people unhealthy. We had tremendous sickness in my home about two weeks ago. It was, uh, everybody was just falling down like flies. Not very fun. If a little bit of germ gets in to your body, are you a little sick or a lot sick? Does it matter? If you're down and out because of the germ, do, I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Like a little, it's like a little fly in the ointment kind of message. It ruins the whole ointment, right? A little bit of sin in you is as good as a lot of sin in all of you. And what he's saying is that it's not that you're just a little dirt inside will dirty it up. It's a little dirt inside makes it completely dirty. And you're guilty as though you're completely dirty. Now, verse 11, he who said, One part of the law also said other parts of it. In other words, you try to justify yourself by the parts of the law you do keep, but you want to be overlooked for the parts that you don't keep. And he says you become a transgressor of the law. If you fail to keep one part of God's law, you keeping keeping the other parts are not able to redeem you from his judgment. 
If you're not keeping one part of the law, you keeping the other parts are not able to redeem you from his judgment. And he goes on to say, if you approach the Lord to judge your rights based upon how you relate to the law yourself, but have not shown mercy in your judging the rights of others, the Lord will judge you without mercy. That should make you sit up in your seat. The Lord will judge you without mercy. If you fail to show mercy, if you make these kinds of distinctions. So, we're not speaking and acting as a result of the way God treats us in the gospel. Verse 12, it says, to let your words and actions flow out of the way that God treats you. Why? When we speak and act out of what we do for ourselves, not what God has done for us, it's living under the law by which we'll only be judged. When we want to be judged by our own merits rather than Christ, that's living under the law that will condemn. But verse 2 says that we're judged under the law of liberty. You're not judged under keeping one or every part of the law of God, but under the law of liberty. Freedom of being treated as one who is, uh, one who is free because you're holding not to yourself, but you're holding on to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're treated with the law of freedom. The law of freedom. Not the law that would bring you judgment. The problem is, is that we want comfort. We want mercy for ourselves because we want our lives to be comfortable. And we want justice for the other guy because we want our lives to be comfortable. Mercy for ourselves and justice for somebody else. What happens when somebody wrongs you? What happens when somebody attributes to you something that's not true? Right? I see this all the time in my own life and in the way that when I talk to you in your lives and the lives of different friends, when somebody wrongs us, we get our back up and we are ready and we have the list of the ways that what they did to us was wrong. We have the list and we can go down the list and we can point it right out. But there's a reason that Jesus said when, when that happens, when somebody sins against you, pay attention also to the log in your own eye when you pay attention to the speck in somebody else's. Why? Because our predisposition is to take, to want, we want to be shown mercy, but we want justice when others wrong us. And we've got to be familiar with both strands of thought. We've got to be familiar with ways that we sin against other people too. Look, our last point is that Jesus gives us God's personal presence, which changes the way we relate to not just one another, not just to the law, but God himself. Let's take a, look, a brief look at that. Verse 1, James uses the phrase, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. What does that mean? The Lord of glory. It sounds like a church word, right? It sounds like a word that you're, you're familiar with using, but when you examine it, it's sometimes hard. It's one of those words you're like, well, what does that actually mean? What does glory mean? And so one of the commentators that I read wrote this. He said, James deliberately introduces the idea of the glory of Jesus, verse 1 and compels us to ask why he does so. And then some further reflection on the biblical meaning of what glory is helps us to answer that question. The commentator goes on to write this. He says, in Exodus 33:18, we find Moses downcast over the history of Israel, uh, the history of Israel to date, and desperately anxious about the future, if the Lord indeed insists that he continue to lead the people. In his need for encouragement and uplifting, and uplifting, he begs, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And in reply, the Lord, ever prompt to meet the needs of those he loves, promises, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. And this is exactly what he does in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. 
The Lord's name is a statement not just of who he is, but much more of what he is. It summarizes the Lord's character and attributes. In this way, when Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, the Lord, in effect, answered by saying, You will certainly see my glory, for I will come to you myself, reveal my essential goodness, and spell out my very nature to you. Glory, then, he writes, is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all his goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. God himself comes among us in all his goodness and in all the full revelation of his person. Verse 7, the Lord of glory, the Lord of personal presence, the Lord who has revealed himself to you, who has called you by his own name and bringing you into his family, adoption. God is the one who decides who gets rights and who doesn't in his family. God is the one who decides. He's the Lord of personal presence. He's the one who decides who he draws near to, who he brings in close, who cannot come in. This is not your distinction to make. God has chosen those. Verse 5, has not God chosen those, those in his family, to be rich in faith, meaning all the means needed and more in faith in Jesus, and heirs of the kingdom, material inheritance coming that displays itself now in a manner of living, which he has promised to those who love him. Verse 5. You know, Peter wrote later in another letter, he wrote this. He said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to his life pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us through his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to us his precious and very great promises. Verse 1, our Lord. You've got to start there. He decides that. Verse 5, James says, my beloved brothers. He's saying, I'm not yelling at you. I'm not yelling at you here. I'm appealing to the fact that you've been made to brothers by his grace By his spirit, we have all been brought into his family. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus cried out. He cried out. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus received the judgment of the law so that you could receive the judgment of liberty. Remember what James says. You've been given the judgment of liberty, a judgment of freedom. Live under that law, the law of freedom because Jesus was bound on your behalf. So look, let's review and let's think about some practical points as we work together. I mean, I know this is kind of an off week, but you still have relationships with one another even as you're doing travel and as you're preparing for Easter. So let's let's look, uh, review where we've been and look at some uh, some of the things that we can do this week together. First thing we covered is Jesus gives us God's personal presence, which changes the way that we relate to one another. And the key point is that we're to be rich in mercy towards others without distinction. Why? Because in Christ, God was rich in mercy towards us. Rich in mercy without distinction. Jesus also gives us God's personal presence, which changes the way that we relate to God's law. The key point is that in Christ, we now live under the law of liberty brought about by Jesus' fulfillment of God's law on our behalf. We have a representative. He's lived the life that we should have lived. He's died the death that we should have died. And then lastly, we covered the fact that Jesus gives us God personal presence, which changes the way that we relate to God himself. And the key point is that because of Jesus' work on your behalf, you 
if you hold to him in faith, are brought into his family, adopted as one of his own, able to enjoy the personal presence of God because on the cross Jesus was judged. Friends, when we think about mercy, when we think about not making distinction, and we'll have a chance to study it in two weeks, so we're not meeting this week, but in two weeks when the, the groups meet up again, we'll be covering this passage in the home meeting study guide, and you have a chance to discuss it more. Mercy looks at the trouble of others and cares and acts and forgives and perseveres because in our Lord Jesus, God looked at our troubled, our troubled nature, our troubled psychology, our troubled relationships, our troubled everything, and he cared and he acted and he forgave and he persevered not only to show us mercy to make us members of his family and co-heirs of his kingdom in Jesus. So how should you live? What does it look like to move out then in knowledge of that? There's some questions from uh, the accompanying chapter that we're reading along. There's a book that we're reading along with as we study this series in relationships. It's a resource the leaders have. You're welcome to read it too. It's a great book. It's called Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. Here are some of the questions that they ask us to take away, and I think that we should, we should take them away and, and work on them together. Do your relationships demonstrate a willingness to suffer for another's sake? Do your relationships show a willingness to suffer for another's sake? In other words, when you're relating, when you think of the relationships that you have in your life, do they show a willingness to suffer for someone else's sake and not live for your own? Another question, I mean, mercy means that you expect suffering in your relationships and are willing to endure it. Another question is, do your attitudes and responses change when you discover that a person is poor in some way? You know, James talks about making distinction, and the example he uses is poor and rich. But I think that he's talking about any distinction that would cut across the rights that we have as children of God. So when you find somebody who's poor in any way, are you making distinctions? Your attitudes and responses change when you discover the person is poor in some way. Mercy means you're willing to live with poverty in people's lives. In your relationships, where are you struggling with God's call to persevere? Showing mercy means perseverance. It means you're committed to persevere in hardship. Are there relationships in which you have indulged in favoritism? Mercy means you resist the temptation to show favoritism. Are there, where is God calling you to leave what is comfortable so that you can share what he has given with you, given to you with another? Where is God calling you to leave what is comfortable so that you can share what he's given to you with another? Mercy means rejecting the personal happiness agenda. We struggle with that in our culture. Where have you allowed yourself to be distracted and irritated by the minor offenses of others? Have you been distracted and irritated with anybody this week? For, for something minor that they did? Have you blown it out of proportion? Mercy means you overlook minor offenses. Are there places where you have confused compromise with mercy? Are there places where you confused compromise with mercy? Now, we didn't touch on that, but the, you can read that more and discuss it in your home meetings. The idea is, is that showing mercy never compromises what is morally right and true. Here's another question. Do your desires get in the way of offering mercy to others? Do your desires of being comfortable get in the way of offering mercy to others? 
Showing mercy will reveal where the treasure of your heart is. When do you get anxious in your life? What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid will be taken from you? When you get anxious, it's like a red flag to show you where the treasure of your heart is. When you are hesitant to show mercy because of something that's going on inside of you, it shows you where the treasure of your heart is. And then lastly, have you tried to extend mercy and begun to see how selfish and patient and unforgiving and inconsistent you can be? What's wrong with this world? Our tendency is to point outside of ourselves and look at other people and other things and other stuff that's going on. But the reality of the message of this is that we're wrong with the world and we desperately need a savior. And giving mercy always demands mercy. Mercy will show you how much your own heart still needs the continuing work of the Redeemer. It will drive you to the end of yourself and to the grace and mercy of your merciful Savior. Friends, show mercy. Show mercy. Don't make distinctions. Remember, it's God who judges, and he gives you grace that you can walk forward in mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for time and your word together. We ask that you would apply... uh, Apply what you would want us to apply from your word. Help us to forget those things which I said uh, which shouldn't apply to our hearts and lives. Bring out your word, your faithfulness, your peace through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand now in your presence because of him. Lord Jesus, we stand now and worship you because of you. And so we come to you now in your